every time you see me, you're going to see a better version of me. It's a self-awareness. It's a sincerity. It is genuinely caring about other people. Are you genuinely curious, seeking first to understand and having the humility to step back and say, I don't know everything about this and I certainly don't know everything about this person. And so what can I learn about this person, about their perspective, about the topic of conversation that we're engaging in? Because if I'm only expressing my opinion, and it's this argument or debate kind of dynamic. There's nothing really constructive or very generative about that kind of process. And so that's just a lot less interesting to me as dialogue, because I'm not going to learn much from that or gain much from that. I think we can be totally candid with each other and demonstrate radical care for one another. You can communicate with care and candor. You don't have to make this false choice between the two. Those are the wise words of Andrew Smallwood, a real role model in life. Andrew combines great intelligence with great humility, has a burning curiosity to learn about other perspectives, and possesses a remarkable ability to communicate with empathy, interest, and fairness. In today's world of cancel culture and divisive communication, Andrew's mindset and skill set make him a perfect example of what we need more of. Civil discourse, candid constructive feedback, open-mindedness, and an ability to bring people together. The timing of this episode is perfect, and the primary subject of our conversation is of utmost importance. Open your mind and get ready for a thought-provoking dialogue featuring my friend, Andrew Smallwood. Welcome to Changing Lives, Selling Knives. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. There's a generation of entrepreneurs and business leaders out there right now who are positively impacting the world using lessons and skills that they first learned from selling Cutco knives with Vector Marketing Corporation. This podcast was created to share inspiring stories from Cutco's most prominent alumni and current leaders. On this show, you'll meet successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. All our guests will have two things in common. One, they're all changing lives today through their work and their influence. And two, they all started out selling Cutco knives when they were younger. The lessons of the Cutco Vector experience are numerous, are compelling, and are real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I have today a special guest who is one of the most well-connected, best-known, best-liked alumni in Cutco. He's somebody that's built tremendous relationships all throughout the nation with uh, the company during his tenure with the company that uh, everybody's excited, I know, to have as a guest for the podcast today. It's Andrew Smallwood. Andrew started with Cutco in 2007. He is from Nashville. He worked very closely with Dave Powders for a number of years, was Dave's right-hand man in the Nashville office in the TKO division. Andrew advanced to be a district manager in Louisville, Kentucky, and held that position for a number of years, ultimately moving on to the company to take on a sales management role with a company called Filter Easy, which has since been rebranded to Second Nature. Second Nature is the number one air filter delivery subscription service in the world. They are a rapidly growing company with a great business model. And Andrew has advanced through the ranks to become their director of sales. He also is the chairman of the board at Front Row Foundation, uh, which I know many Cutco people are familiar with and support. So very excited to have you with us today, Andrew. Thanks so much for making time for the podcast. Dan, so great to be here. Looking forward to this. Me too. Let's get started here. And uh, I'm interested because it's been such a crazy year here. 2020. Amidst this challenging year, what do you feel has been the biggest gift that has emerged for you? 
Mm. Great question, Dan. And, you know, I think of a quote, it's in times of change, mm-hmm. learners inherit the earth while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped to deal with a world that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And that's from a guy named Eric Hoffer, who I think he would have been about 20 years old in the pandemic of 1918. And, you know, it makes it a little more meaningful for me to hear that quote, knowing that context. And I just think of in times of rapid change, it is the learners who thrive. And that's a real gift, in my opinion, of, hey, with all these changes, there's a lot of opportunities in these change to help accelerate the change, navigate the change, adapt to the change, and help others do that as well. And so there's been some amazing stories over the past few months amidst all of the challenges of people really doing doing amazing things, companies doing amazing things through this time. So that's what I think of. Yeah. And, and you've certainly been a part of that uh, with what you're doing, and we'll certainly get into that uh, that today. So very cool. I, I had heard that quote before, but I did not know the context of the writer of that quote being 20 years old at the time of the last major pandemic that we, that, uh, we experienced worldwide. So pretty interesting to hear that. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you got started with Cutco. Yeah. So 2007, if I'm rolling back. And actually, Dan, I had two other jobs lined up for the summer. I was a, a golf camp counselor. And actually, uh, TJ Ducklow, who's actually the He's like running the campaign for Joe Biden right now. He was a high school classmate of mine and in uh, my college roommate my freshman year at George Washington University. And TJ was always kind of a go-getter. And he was running essentially this camp at the Jewish Community Center. And he said, will you teach all of our young campers how to hit a golf ball, which I was excited about as a, as a state golfer. And then I was also doing some part-time work, uh, doing some like sound editing and mixing for church services and weddings and whatnot. And so I was set. But then my friend Anna Hall recommended me to the position. And I just knew if Anna Hall was working there, I was at least going to check this place out. <laughs> and so that's how I went in for my interview. And then, you know, fast forward, my story, I'm sure is like many where I had started part-time around those other jobs, but then three job became one job. And I was really fully invested in Cutco and what I was earning and what I was learning and uh, the environment that I was in. I could tell I wanted to do more with this and got on a path of advancement with the company. Yeah. And you had a, a great run and, and particularly those early years, like you became pretty well known across the company before you were ever even a district manager. Tell us about some of the early experiences you had. I just remember my assistant manager summer coming out of that and wanting to become a branch manager so badly that I, I committed myself to, I think, what's called the Leadership Academy now, or management training. Yeah. And uh, I just committed myself to really being wholly invested in that and getting everything out of that that I possibly could. Uh, and I basically trained so hard, Dan, that I kind of rose up uh, the ranks of candidates. And Dave Powder selected me to be the pilot sales manager or Dom at the time. Yeah. And so... Anyways, that commitment to learning and growth and excelling that really started there set off a couple of years of some really exciting achievements and a lot of really cool people that we met, you know, in those summers. So, yeah. What were some of the experiences that you feel like really transformed your career or your life? So, when I think of transformational experiences, one I think of is in the summer of 2010, which was my second summer as the pilot manager in Nashville with Dave early in May, there was a, you probably remember this, Dan, there was a massive flood, billions of dollars of damage. And just as this pandemic was happening, we had a bunch of tornadoes with a lot of damage here in Nashville. It just reminded me of that time when we had put in so much effort and planning. I remembered this 47 page business plan that was totally detailed that we'd put together we had a 10-person assistant manager staff. We had a dozen reps coming back for the summer uh, to sell with us and, and just all of these exciting goals. And then suddenly, we couldn't get into the office. Uh, it was flooded for days <laughs> and, and like all the highways were broken down. 
And uh, I'm sure people had a similar experience of, oh, wow, we can't get into this physical place together and do things the way we normally did. And there's all these challenges of customers, you know, the economic hardship, everything people were facing. But there was this kind of defining moment, Dan, where we just said, our goals are too important to let this stop us. Like we are going to choose to be unstoppable in the face of whatever's going on. And as soon as that commitment was made, all of the creative answers started coming. And the execution step of the the rep-driven PR program that kind of highlighted that success and a lot of growth for a lot of offices that occurred in the years following was kind of born out of that crisis and challenge. And so that's, that's one experience that I look back to as a real defining moment of it's, it's not always what you achieve, it's what you overcome that really defines people's potential and ultimately what you're taking away from an experience that can be really important. Uh, what you just said was so compelling that it's not what you achieve, but it's what you overcome that really says a lot about you. I can remember a, a story of a mountain climber climbing a mountain that uh, was incredibly difficult. And, you know, he described that you could be dropped, a helicopter could put you on the top of the mountain and then you've, you've arrived at the top of the mountain, but you didn't become anything in that process, right? It's, it's the process of scaling the mountain of oftentimes failing, falling, right? Having to regroup and go back up and, you know, all those things that we do when we're uh, striving for meaningful goals that truly shape us and also that give us a story to tell. Like now you look back on that flood in 2010 as one of the transformational moments in your life. And in the moment, it might have been hard to see that, but relatively quickly, you and Dave both saw that and decided that it wasn't going to stop you and you guys were still going to have a great, great summer, which I know you did that summer. So I, I just love that. that what you said that our goals are too important to let this stop us. Mm. And, and Dan, I think about actually at some point in my vector career, I added into our interview the question of what is the greatest challenge that you faced and how did you overcome it? And I remember asking those questions and hearing those stories from applicants who, of course, became representatives and became people advancing in the organization. And it's one that we still ask in our interview process today for the point you mentioned, which is that it's not what's the height of the last peak that somebody climbed, right? But like, how far did they have to go to get there? That tells you a lot more. One might tell you about their capacity, but the other tells you a lot more about their potential. And looking for that in talent is something we prize and look for in our team is that grit, that resilience, that confidence that comes not from a place of privilege or just being in a good situation, but that comes from earning with every step what you achieved and where you got. It gives you a sense of where people can go when you see those muscles that have built on them as you were using your, your mountain climber analogy. I really like that. Yeah. You know, you could find the most, quote, talented individual with all of the great attributes that you think can make a, a great success story but if they're missing the grit element if they're missing that persistence that willingness to work through a difficulty they will inevitably flop and disappear because those challenges are going to come to every single person there is no success story that does not involve some measure of difficulty along the way at least not in the long term and so it's such a key thing to find in people or to develop in ourselves through putting ourselves into challenging positions, I think is what enables us to, to develop that. Like we should be deliberately seeking those opportunities out. Absolutely. Yeah. What other valuable lessons or concepts do you feel stand out from your time with Vector? Something I think of as like a mantra is every time you see me, you're going to see a better version of me was something that I remember repeating to myself over and over. And that I think was part of my reputation in Cutco, and, and I hope, I think still today, which is that going through that Leadership Academy management training, 
I always wanted to show up the next month and say to Dave Powders, look at how my startup and savings account you know, has grown since the last time I've seen you. Look at how my closing ratio, my average order have changed you know, since this time last year. Look at how my ability to speak in public and present has developed over time. The confidence and the passion that comes through where once I was timid in these kind of situations. And so tons of examples and meaningful ways in which growth was happening. But to me, it's one of the things I'm so appreciative and find so is so special about the Cutco organization and the Vector organization is that there's this tremendous work environment and culture with an accent on personal growth and development that really encourages that. And really just that came alive in me in a way it never had existed before I started working with Cutco. Indeed. It certainly is one of the things that I know as an executive with the company that we pride ourselves on is creating that environment, fertile environment that people can grow in. I laugh sometimes because I've, I've been asked by people like, how did you develop people like John Berghoff and Hal Elrod? Uh, and these are names that virtually everybody in the Cutco world knows or remembers. And, and I tell them like, I didn't develop John Berghoff and Hal. I can't take credit for developing those guys. What I can take credit for is providing a fertile environment in which they could grow. And that is what Vector strives to do for people is we provide the environment where there's other people learning, other people growing, people talking about being better every day. And that by uh, the law of association with others, right? We, we want to become like that. We tend to become like the people around us, develop their thinking and their habits. And that's what, uh, sort of, uh, indoctrinates young vector people in the ways of thinking that are constructive and positive and growth oriented for the rest of their life. So it's cool that you recognize that being a key element of our success. And Dan, if I, I could follow up with a thought and a question for you, because I'd, I'd love to, if I can selfishly <laughs> ask this question of you, but something that captured my fascination and really brought out a lot of the best in me during my time with Cutco was an interest and curiosity of what gets people to bring their voluntary energy to work. Like a lot of people think of their relationship with work might be this nine to five, I show up, I leave, and there's this kind of obligation type of energy or what I have to do to not get fired or avoid these consequences. But what I noticed with Cutco Infectors, I was inspired to work beyond 5 p.m. And so many of the people around me were inspired at times. I think of the SC2 and the push periods. And it's like really giving 100% of your focus and energy and discipline to something. And what a powerful experience that can be for people to see what they're capable of. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, how do you think about when you think about the work environment you're creating or just work in general, what really gets people to bring that voluntary energy to work to bring their best? Yeah, I think that it ties into the vision people have for their own future and how they see what they're doing now, moving them along the line toward that vision. When you describe the person who is afraid of getting fired and so they do what they're told at their work, that person is merely renting their time for a paycheck in that job. There is no long-term vision of where they're going to be or what the job is going to make of them. There's nothing like that in a place where somebody is just focused on doing what they're told so they don't get fired. In Vector, I think what we try to do for people is we try to paint a vision for people of the future. What, and we paint one future in Vector, but we're also willing to paint the future outside of Vector as well and help people see that if they do the right things now, these are the things that will open up for them, right? They can become the very best of their kind in their field, whatever it is that they do. They can have great doors that open up within the company that can enable them to earn a good income and have all these great experiences and be around all the cool people, et cetera, right? We, we try to help them see this vision. So there's a straight line from what I'm doing today, this week, this month to who I want to be and where I want to be. 
And that's what I think motivates people in the present. Does that resonate? Mm, that's really great. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for spinning the interview around a little bit there, Andrew. <laughs> Careful. I may do it once or twice more, but <laughs> this is great. No, no problem. No problem. I, I was counting on that from you. So tell us, how did the, the path evolve to what you're doing now? Something I remember bothering me as a manager and just maybe getting into my curiosity around that question was like, I never wanted to be somebody who quit. And I had trouble with seeing people quit. Like I, I emotionally struggled with why that might be happening or could be happening. And oftentimes you hear these things of people don't quit a company, they quit a manager. And so as a manager, I wanted to say, is there feedback in this for me? Right. Mm. And things I can do better uh, to create that environment, right. Where people are inspired and bringing their best. And ultimately Cutco is such a special place that I was there for a relatively long time. I guess certainly not as long as you, Dan, but you know, nine years ultimately with the company in a variety of roles. And I enjoyed every single one of them and each of them were meaningful and fulfilling. What ultimately took me outside of the company was, hey, this path of growth that I'm on, I, I want to be applying you know, my skills and confidence towards that different endpoint that you were just talking about. It was just that my aspirations took me out of the business. Mm-hmm. It was nothing about the manager or the people. All those things were really special. And certainly, I'm sure you hear this from many alumni, there's so many of those things that they really miss and are nostalgic for. But my aspirations ultimately took me outside of the business. And so that's what what took me to where I am today, which is I got really passionate about business-to-business sales and ultimately leading a team and being a part of a startup growth you know, stage kind of company was something that really interested me and ultimately attracted me to what was at the time Filter Easy. And I think you know this, Dan, but the founder of that company, Thad Tarkington, is actually... He was a branch manager for Larry Manley. And he's, he's one of the many people that are having their you know, entrepreneurial start somewhere else, making an impact on the world. And, uh, and it was cool to know that we had that shared history, you know, as we were getting things started. So anyway, that's what got me to where I am now. Yeah. Well, tell us about your experience with Second Nature. Oh, it's unbelievable, Dan. I think I was employee number 27, something like that. And we're coming up on a couple hundred employees. It reminds me of kind of the the rapid team building (laughs) that would sometimes occur in the Cutco and Vector organization. And it's a group of people who are, you know, they don't ask what's the least I can do. They ask what's the most I can do. Hmm. And we're just the shattering of status quos that are happening. It's really exciting. The reputation that we're building in our industry, like a couple of accolades to share. And this isn't really a credit to me as much as it is our whole team that represents us, but it's, we're back to back winners of the vendor industry affiliate of the year award. And there's over 200 companies that could be selected for this. And you can imagine, Dan, there's like billion dollar software companies. There's, you know, people who have been there for decades and it's this upstart filter company. I mean, I thought I'd gone from like having a weird job, right? Where I say I sell knives kitchen products and that, that that was the unsexy thing to do that I could like smile, you know, about. And I've gone to air filters, Dan. I mean, that's... uh, (laughs) Maybe even less sexy, but equally necessary for people. (laughs) That's right. And, you know, learning that lesson at Cutco that work work can be much more than, you know, just the product that you sell or the service that you offer. But it's how this group of people ultimately brings about an impact in the world together and how they show up to work for each other, for their customers and clients, you know, is something that's really inspiring about Cutco. And I don't want to downplay the world-class product that Cutco is, the forever guarantee and the incredible, you know, the long history and ultimately track record of success that so much of that's credit to the product. I just mean it to say that in addition to that, that work can be be really meaningful and fun, a place where you can challenge yourself and ultimately impact other people in meaningful ways. So, Yeah. Well, what do you feel you have brought to advance so quickly with your company to a prominent role? It's really the same things, the skills 
and confidences developed during my time with Vector and just applying those again and again and and more and more deeply. I guess when I think, Dan, of advancement where I'm at, I think about that every time you see me, you're going to see a better version of me. That, That continuing to be on that path of taking personal initiative, right? To grow, to learn, that that was important. The work ethic, you know, that was developed uh, that you hear sometimes on this podcast is something that can be a real advantage when somebody is new in a company because you learn that, hey, maybe as you're trying to figure out how to do things more effectively or more efficiently, you can make up for it with a little bit of grit, with a little extra elbow grease. And that can help you put you in a position to stand out until you develop your skills to a point where that's what's making you stand out. And that's when I think about my early time in my you know, next chapter of my career, uh, some of those lessons really stand out as what helped me get to kind of the next level where I am now. Yeah, that's cool to hear. Thanks for sharing that. You mentioned something a little earlier, Andrew, which was in your experience when reps quit or left your office, your team, you looked at it and thought, is there feedback in this for me? So instead of, for example, thinking, oh, God, that rep's lame, right? You took every one of those opportunities as a, a way to kind of look in the mirror and say, is there anything I could have improved about myself in order to have retained this person? And I, that's such a constructive way of thinking. It shows so much of your ability and your desire to understand other people's perspectives and to see other people's perspectives. This is one of the things I've admired most about you over the years is that you just, you have this real ability to see other people's perspectives, this sense of empathy. You have a remarkable combination of qualities that I would label as curiosity plus humility plus intelligence plus tremendous communication skills all rolled into one. And I would really like to unpack this a little bit and talk about this because I think it can lead us into some pretty important things that we could discuss. So let me start by just asking you, how do you feel this combination of qualities evolved for you? Mm. So I think an important part of this was the desire to grow and the desire to learn, like to be a learn it all as opposed to a know it all. It's not the, again, the people that know that inherit the earth, right? (laughs) Or thrive in times of change, but the people that are learning to come back to where we started. Mm -hmm. And an important lesson for me, Dan, something I struggled with a little bit was, especially as a younger person, was like caring about what others think. And then I hear some people talk about that and they're like, well, you don't care about what others think at all. And it's, it's kind of this license to be brash or frankly, just a jerk uh, <laughs> is the way it can sometimes be wielded. And so I kind of struggled with that and thought about caring too little about what other people think, you know, can make us look thoughtless. Caring too much appears inauthentic. But people who come across as both self-aware and sincere, they treat their reputations, you know, like a mirror in that they're checking on it. You know, they might be looking at it once every day but they're not staring obsessively into it, uh, you know, and only, only thinking about that. And that kind of self-awareness and sincerity, holding both of those together rather than choosing an either or gave me the kind of clarity to say, you know, I want to use whatever feedback or, or other people are doing. Like I can use that as a mirror to check myself in the mirror, right? And see if there's anything there for me. Um, but I don't have to obsess over it uh, and, and obsess w- over what other people think or what other people say in such a way that I'm not authentically myself. And that, that's the way I try to think about it and move through it. Mm. The whole idea of caring about what other people think without obsessing about what other people think, that distinction is really powerful. I think you listen to a lot of these podcast episodes. I did an episode that I called Five 
pieces of bad advice people give you. There's actually a blog I wrote also on this on my website. And one of them is that the bad advice is that we should all care less about what other people think. There's a lot of people that say, oh, don't care about what other people think, right? Do your own thing, be you, right? All that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's a shred of truth to that, but it gets taken to an extreme. And what I feel happens when you don't care about what anybody else thinks is it develops a sort of a selfish kind of me first way of thinking and acting, which also promotes uncomfortable interactions and increases conflict. And one of the things I want to talk about with you today is how you interact with people where you disagree, but you're able to do it in a way that doesn't create conflict. And I think that's rooted in that you you do care about what they think, that you do respect what they think at some level, and that uh, you know there's that balance between trying to you know be someone who can have comfortable interactions with others who are different from you, but not obsessing about it so much that it lets you feel worse about yourself just because somebody disagrees with you. You don't take it personally if somebody disagrees with you, in other words, right? Did any of that make sense? It does. I think of the book, The Four Agreements, and don't take anything personally and what sage advice that is. And I think it's it's a self-awareness. It's a sincerity. It is genuinely caring about other people. And there's a part of this too that links back to that desire to learn. And the curiosity was one of the words that you used is, are you genuinely curious, seeking first to understand and having the humility to step back and say, I don't know everything about this. And I certainly don't know everything about this person that I'm standing in front of. And so what can I learn about this person, about their perspective, about the topic of conversation, you know, that we're engaging in? Because if I'm only expressing my opinion, right, and it's this argument or debate kind of dynamic that feels, I'm just going to throw up the best I have and try to tear down whatever they have. Well, there's, there's nothing really constructive or very generative about that kind of process. And so that's just a lot less interesting to me as dialogue, because I'm not going to learn much from that or gain much from that. So I don't know if that helps, Dan, but that's kind of what I'm taking from what you said and that other kind of key element of curiosity. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So I, I just think this mentality and the skill set that you bring to communication. It's so important and it's particularly important right now, right? So we are recording this episode within two months of the election here in the US, uh, the presidential election. And my belief is that in the next six, seven weeks, whatever we have left, both sides are gonna make every effort they possibly can to tear everybody apart. We're all going to be encouraged to hate other people. And really, it's going to be a divisive period in our time. And we need people to adopt more of the mentality of curiosity, interest, humility, seeking first to understand, as you said. Like, that's so important right now. Right? Could you speak to what you feel like is the importance of what I guess we could call civil discourse? Yeah. And Dan, I think what we also recognize and something that people, you know, everyone listening to this will connect with is that online is also just like the medium of having these kind of conversations online does something to us, you know, <laughs> in meaning I have seen people who I respect, who are some of the kindest people I know from personal experience, behave in very curious ways when they get into conversation online. And the things that I never would imagine them saying if they were standing in front of the person they were talking to. Mm. And perhaps online, there's this element of you know, I don't know this person personally, right? Or don't know them very well. And suddenly you see people engage with them differently because they, it's like they've lost value on the relationship and they've increased the value on just communicating what they want to communicate, making their point. And 
I think it's just like a false choice to do that. I think we can be totally candid with each other and demonstrate radical care for one another, whether we know them, whether that's online, in person or not. Like you can communicate with care and candor. You don't have to make this false choice between the two. And I would love to see that come into our dialogue in person, online, more and more if people held that intention. And we had the safety, which we could get into a little bit if we want to, in the conversation to have that kind of productive, constructive dialogue. Yeah, I like what you said about communicating with care and candor at the same time. Like, that's a good way of looking at how we're trying to impact somebody else versus the sort of attacking type of way that, uh, that we see so many people communicate, particularly, as you said, online. You also made a really interesting point about would you say that if you were standing in front of that person? That's a good, a good insight to think about as well, because I just, you see so much just negative, just vitriol that goes on merely because someone disagrees with you on something. And it could be major topics. I mean, certainly the political spectrum is a major topic, but I just saw a contact of mine who doesn't even live in the United States, lives in Canada, posted just the other day something like, uh, if you support Trump, befriend me right now, please. And my thought was, if he wants to influence somebody, they need to be in his sphere of influence, right? Um, yeah. And that's an important thing is I, we, we want to be able to have influence. We want to keep people in our sphere of influence so that we can have some impact on people. Because, you know, a lot of people will tell you that nothing changes when you spout out something in a thread online. I don't know that anything changes right away, but that the more inputs somebody receives, in a certain area that they are learning about or, you know, that they're involved in discussing, gradually people do evolve, right? Most of us have beliefs that are different today than they were 10 years ago in different things. And so there is an evolution that happens when ideas are presented in a constructive way. How do you tackle it when somebody expresses an opinion about something that or an opposing view that you feel like needs to be addressed. You feel like it's so egregious that it needs to be addressed. How do you, how do you tackle that? Dan, I guess a couple things come up for me. One is, I can't remember where I first heard this analogy, but it's the analogy of like a beach ball. And it's, if you think of the beach ball as the issue or the topic or the center of the dialogue, that if I'm holding it in front of my face, I can see the blue part you know, of the beach ball. And to me, the beach ball looks blue. Of course, on the other side of that beach ball, there might be a red color or a different color that I'm not seeing while I'm looking at the blue aspect of this. And so for difficult topics, I try to hold that analogy close because when somebody says something that surprises me or bothers me, or, or I mean, I will admit there are times where people say things that upset me or I get uncomfortable. And that's my initial reaction. But as quickly as I can, I try to think, okay, how can I be curious before becoming critical? Meaning, is this actually a beach ball that if I spun it around, I could actually see things from their point of view? And can I try that first before moving to, nope, they're just not looking at this correctly. And I've been guilty of that myself. And people have educated that me to that myself. Of I didn't have all the facts or I was making assumptions or I was seeing something that wasn't really there. And those experiences kind of inspire the humility where you can say, you know what, there's more I can learn about this at a minimum, even if I don't change this person's mind. I can better understand their perspective. I can better understand how they got to that perspective and what's informing their point of view. And that might teach me something about engaging other people in this topic, you know, in the future so that I can better connect with them and find mutual purpose. I can show mutual respect in this kind of conversation where we can have a more interesting conversation together. 
Mm, that, that was so powerful, Andrew. Just the idea of being curious before being critical. I love how a lot of themes in this podcast kind of come back up and recur. Like I remember Michael Ambrosino sharing that exact concept. And you'll find this interesting because I know you haven't listened to the episode with Pete Borum. He's going to be one week before you on the release. And he talks about the beach ball. It must be something about uh, something about having lived in Kentucky or something. They teach you that beach ball thing over there. You think uh, it's a bourbon glass or something <laughs> if it was from Kentucky, but <laughs> yeah, but that it's just a great way of looking at how people think. It's like you're a child's worldview, a child who's say 10 years old, their worldview is, is shaped almost exclusively by their parents. Right. I mean, maybe by 10, it's starting to be shaped by other kids at school and things like that. It's certainly at like four years old, a child's worldview has been shaped completely by their parents. And then it starts to be shaped by other people and more other people and more other people. But still, by the time somebody's 20 years old, most of their worldview stems from their own small, very small circle of influence, their color of the beach ball, their one eighth or whatever of the beach ball, like that's their worldview. And what's important to realize if you're listening to this is that your worldview has largely been created by the circle of influence that you have had up until now. And that by being curious before critical, you're actually exploring other sides of the beach ball. You're actually putting yourself into other people's perspectives, other people's shoes, so to speak. And it's giving you a chance to kind of live there for a few minutes and see what it's like and feel it and sense it. And it gives us an exposure that is truly the only way that we can evolve on important issues in society is by giving ourselves that deliberate exposure. And you've always made an effort to do that, Andrew. And then, you know, when somebody has uh, said something that you feel like has to be called out, you present your own thoughts in a way that shows this curiosity and empathy. And I just think it's so, it's such a powerful way of interacting that I really respect about you. Thank you for that, Dan. And as you're talking through that, it makes me think about, you know, something I would advocate for is sometimes when people talk about free speech and like being afraid to speak up, right? You could think about, I guess what I would advocate for in our discourse is let's be tolerant of more opinions and points of view being able to come in. But that does not mean free license to like, it doesn't mean like it's free speech, not free megaphone. It does not mean it goes unchallenged. It does not mean it goes unaddressed. It doesn't mean, Hey, freedom to, you know, have everyone agree with you. And so it's, you know, I think people who know me knows that I'll stand for what I believe in, but I want to show respect and I want to invite good conversation in. I want people to feel that way, leaving a conversation with us that they can say anything with me because they know I'm going to hold mutual respect for them and that I'm going to try to find mutual purpose and what we might agree on or look for those kind of things first that ultimately can help us get to a place where we may walk away totally disagreeing about what to do or what to think, but that we could have an interesting conversation about it and still hold that respect at the end. Yeah, that's so important. I, I feel like, Andrew, I have a very small number of people that I know that I would be willing to go to and say, hey, I really grapple with this social issue and here's why. And just describe how I feel and be open about it and not being afraid of what are they going to think of me? How are they going to feel about this? Like, they'll just give me their, back their opinion. We can talk about it. We can banter about it. I can evolve my view a little bit. They may, maybe they'll evolve their view a little bit. We'll all grow because we had that conversation. We need people that we can have that conversation with. We need to be able to have that conversation with anyone. We need to feel the safety of being able to say, I really don't like Californians. And here's why I don't like Californians and voice that opinion and then have somebody be able to counter that by saying, well, look, here's my perspective on this, right? And um, if we shut down opinions or views, then those people aren't going to change, right? 
they're never going to evolve if we shut down their thoughts and ha- have people hold stuff in. So it's, it's when things are discussed that people can evolve. And I would add when things are discussed appropriately, right? The, the whole attacking mentality doesn't really work. I read a quote a while back, which was something about a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? Mm. You can't twist somebody's arm to change their mind versus what you do, which is presenting, hey, have you thought about this? And offering ideas, questions, concepts to think about, presented in a non-judgmental way that gets people to evolve their thinking slowly but surely. And therefore, they ultimately are convinced when they once they've evolved, right? Yes. And Dan, if I can add to this, that a trigger for me to know that I need to step back you know, because listen, as we're talking about these things, I recognize there are there are still times, and I'm with Facebook, right? I'm sure somebody could go find them. <laughs> you know, at some point where, hey, these are things I strive for and aspire to, right? And these are the ideals I'm trying to hold. But a lot of times, it takes conscious, intentional effort because it's so easy to get caught up in a moment or in a particular discussion, especially if it's fraught, especially if it's personal. And these things can be easy to say, but really difficult to actually do. And one of the triggers I think about is when somebody has a comment or somebody expresses something and I see myself going for, you know, what people would call like a straw man or just like pointing out what's wrong about it or pointing out or making a uncharitable assumption about what it might mean, right? Or what it even says about them that they expressed this. Rather than indulging those kind of feelings or temptations, if I can stop and say, hey, what's actually, what's right about what they're saying? How can I actually strengthen their argument first? You know, could I actually strengthen this opposing argument? And rather than if they're missing a piece of this or whatever it is, say, how can we strengthen the argument on this side of the beach ball, so to speak, first? And what is the best version of this perspective rather than shut down conversation by pointing out flaws that might have been expressed in, or shortcomings in the communication or wording of it? And so that, that's something I would encourage everyone to take is like, what's the most charitable assumption I can make here, right? Or how can I strengthen this opposing argument as opposed to Again, just trying to one-up or show mine as the superior point of view. And that usually leads to better and more interesting conversation. Great, great and powerful insight, Andrew. What's the most charitable assumption I could make here? I think that starts us off on a road to being able to have good communication with somebody else. It's a great reminder. And by all means, there's nobody who is perfect at this sort of stuff. I will readily use myself front and center as having blown up multiple times in, in conversations, <laughs> on, whether it be online well, or if someone is composed, If someone is composed as Dan Cassetta, who I think, when I think of, of lessons and things I've taken from your examples of leadership, Dan, I'm sure you often get the feedback that you're somebody who has this sense of calm who has this sense of composure that you're able to regulate your own emotions and be really thoughtful. I'm sure you get that a lot. I'm sure it's helpful for people to hear that even people like Dan Cassetta, you know, can, can feel or experience the same thing I'm sure they're experiencing. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like, uh, Having a hobby like playing poker has taught me a lot about the importance of composure because you, you have this roller coaster of things that happen to you in a you know four five six hour session and that you have to you have to deal with and it's a microcosm for life and it's important for us to be able to take a step back from things in the heat of the moment. Okay, Trent Booth just said this uh, just the other day in an episode that's going to air here soon that you, it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to act angry most of the time. That whole concept of, you know, being able to distinguish between how you're feeling and what you say or do to act on it is really important. So, but I know that I've certainly failed at that from time to time. I also know that I've learned about this idea of not taking things personally from the four agreements. And therefore, I've been willing to, I guess I could say, put myself out there with 
how I'm feeling about things or viewpoints or opinions or whatever at the risk of being wrong in the interest of creating a dialogue or in the interest of expressing some sense of uh, positivity about something or whatever it might be. I think that's important. I think it helps in the world that, uh, you know, more people are like you and I are out there willing to share what's on our mind and create dialogue. And it's because I'm not super worried about somebody attacks my view. I'm, I'm okay with that. I can live with it. And that's a, all a part of creating this whole feel of, uh, you know, civil discourse and better communication, better interactions that I think we can all strive for. Good stuff. Good stuff, Andrew. Really good stuff. Hey, before we wrap up, tell us a little bit about your involvement in Front Row Foundation. Yeah. So very passionate about Front Row Foundation. I know you've had John Froman and so many Front Row supporters. And it, it's great that the charity was born out of Cutco. When I think of the it, I, the company's what, doing $300 million in sales, $250, $300 million in sales every year and growing, which is exciting. But you think about the trillions of dollars of sales of Cutco alumni out doing work in the business world. And then there's also the nonprofit world and the causes that are coming alive in the world that have roots in Cutco. And I would just say quickly what I donate to a variety of charities over time, you know, or causes over time. I've donated some time to a, like a, a smaller select group of charities, but you know, Front Row is really my charity. It's the cause I'm most passionate about. Because when I think about the end of our lives, looking back, I think we will understand and kind of measure our lives, you know, primarily through the moments that are meaningful and memorable. And a Front Row moment is taking someone from chemo, their lowest low, to front row, chemo to front row, right? Their lowest moment to their brightest moment. And, and people in their darkest chapter in life, having this bright experience is transformational for people. It does, it's not just that moment. It actually transforms how they live the rest of their days after that. And it's the only charity that like changed my perspective on life. And to actually, you know, treat each day as a series of moments. And within each of those moments, there is an opportunity to create a front row experience for myself, for others. And how can I show up to this moment? How can I be generous? How can I be creative? How can I be empathetic? How can I be curious? How can I be all of these things? Many of the things we talked about today in this one, how can I most boldly express the values that I want to express before my time is done here in these kind of moments and make the most of the moments that make up our days, the days that make up our life. And so anyways, that's my little stump speech on <laughs> what front row means to me and ultimately how it connects. And the last thing I'll say is that as a manager, I was fundraising for front row. And actually as an early rep, a lot of people don't know this about me, Dan, that when I was a brand new rep, like my like signature calling card, was a trade-in for charity. So we'd do like the B block, right? And they would give us their, you know, their knives and donating hundreds of pounds of cutlery. And I know Micah Bromwitz and so many other people are doing this in really cool ways. But I found this really meaningful connection that my time at Vector was about becoming the best version of myself and helping healthy young people, right? See that future vision that you talked about and walk the straight line you know, towards it, building the skills and confidence and creating the kind of exceptional experiences that are transformational in life. And that this charity was a way to help people who were not healthy in that same kind of purpose. And aligning those two was something really meaningful when we were running an office together, you know, myself and the, and the rest of the team, that we really enjoyed engaging in that alignment of purpose. So that was the, probably the last thing I'll share about Front Row. Yeah, neat, neat. Well, you're doing you're doing great uh, great stuff with your involvement there. I know you're chairman of the board, and it's really positive to see. Hey, as we wrap this up, uh, Andrew, as you look ahead into your future, how do you aspire to change people's lives through what you do? Yeah, you know, Dan, 
Thanks for the question and great to have a chance to speak to this, which is when I think about the message of my life at the end of the day, what I would love it to be is I would love the message of my life to be one of radical generosity. And I don't know if John Rulin coined that term or if it's trademarked, so I apologize if it's copywritten. <laughs> but I don't mind adopting uh, that verbiage because it just really resonates for me that radical generosity makes things so interesting. There was a time in my life where I really measured how I was doing by like things that I had, right? I would like, it could be material possessions, but it could be a bank account balance. It could like savings goals. It could be getting my dream car. I remember right before the flood, uh, purchasing my dream sports car and that that was so significant, you know, as a college student at the time, like buying a car with cash. That was really something cool that Cutco enabled me to do. But over time, you know, that kind of generous spirit that was there from day one, but was nurtured over time, you know, with the great leaders in Cutco, I think about people like yourself, Dave Powders, Jeff Gamboa, you know, Kate Arbuthnot, now Kate Vasey. I think about John Kane and John Roman and, and a number of people you've had on this podcast. And it's why I'll keep re-listening to many of your podcast episodes because being around those people nurtures this generous spirit of leadership and influence in the world uh, that I think has a really meaningful impact and makes things more interesting you know, throughout the day. Anyway, I would love for my life at the end of it for people to say that was a life of radical generosity because he didn't measure his life by what he had, but he measured it by what he could give. And you can't give something if you don't have it, right? And so it's like, by definition, you have to have it, but it's actually what you give away that how success might be measured. And so that mission of contribution, I would say, is what motivates me most right now. Yeah, that, that is a tremendous note to end on here, Andrew. Really, really great ideas, incredible value added for our audience today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your stories and your insights on the podcast today. This has been awesome. Dan, you're the best. Thank you. All right. Andrew Smallwood, everyone. I think that was one of the most important conversations I've had on the podcast ever because of the times that we are in in our world is calling for a greater level of empathy and a higher level of communication skills. And Andrew is adept in these areas the idea of seeking first to understand, asking ourselves, what's the most charitable assumption I could make in this situation about this person and what they're thinking, how they're feeling, what they're presenting? Being curious before critical, right, is an important effort to make so that we can communicate with care and andor at the same time. That was a tremendous insight that Andrew offered I also like the idea of being a learn-it-all versus being a know-it-all. And if you want to think about how you can get better in terms of areas of empathy and communication, Andrew had that mantra that every time you see me, you're going to see a better version of me. Are you studying? Are you learning? Are you practicing your skills? Are you catching yourselves in those moments where you are not displaying empathy, patience, curiosity? Such good insights. And I'll end with one of Andrew's last insights, which is that you measure how you're doing by what you give to the world. If you're looking for what you can get from others, from your job, from your relationships, and from the world, you're going to get things, but you won't get much. If you're looking for what you can give and the ways that you can add value in your job, in your relationships, and to the world in general, then by adding value, you will end up getting a whole lot more than you would ever imagine back your way. And that's an awesome paradigm to have is that concept of looking for what you can give. Andrew Smallwood has always demonstrated this. Just a great guy, excellent leader, awesome friend to have, and hope you've enjoyed getting to know him here today, hearing his story and his lessons. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed today's episode of Changing Lives, Selling Knives, please consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player and hit the subscribe button so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.